Hello everybody, welcome to Outspoken. My name is Justin White, and my guest this week is my new friend Angeli Kosla. Uh, she is a journalist and a professor of journalism and a poet and many other things, I'm sure. Um, so, And she's also a friend of my friend Mac. And um, she and I had never met before this conversation, which is always fun and interesting. Um, but we had a bunch of technical difficulties. I think it was mainly a bad Wi-Fi connection or something. And we worked it out in the end, and Anjali was incredibly patient and gracious throughout. Um, but it did seem like there was a weird connection, and you may notice some digital overlap, interference, and such. Um, what else? Uh, oh, well, this interview took place over a month ago, uh, but everything we talked about is still quite relevant. Um, some things, regretfully so. Uh, you'll see what I mean. But um, Angela, being a journalist, uh, asked me some questions to start, and I caught some of the response because I want this to be about her and not about me, but I might use some of that in a future Outtakes episode, and you can learn all about me. Sometimes I leave in this stuff with myself talking because I feel like it might resonate with some people. Um, but I mostly want the episodes to be about guests. And sometimes I can't stand listening to myself talk. Uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with self-loathing. Um, but I'm working on that and getting over it. And I'm, I've actually found that I've turned a corner recently in terms of self-judgment so I'm happy about that and talking to all these beautiful lovely humans is quite helpful for me I find it truly valuable to get um, another person's perspective and who better to get that from than people you can call your friends so let's talk to Anjali and then uh, at the end I can tell you about some of the articles she's written and how to find them. Okay, um, because you can never have too many birds, well, except when they're attacking you uh, in a Hitchcock movie. But otherwise, I don't think you can have too many um, unless they're pooping on your head and you can't get them to stop. But besides that, you can't have too many birds. And you can't have too many cute little old dogs either. Howling in the background. You know, I, I like now I'm teaching. I mean, I've I've, I've taught univ at the university level on and off since like. 2007 or something but um but you know I, I was I, I, there are, you know there are students who a lot of students um who, who have 
you know, this thing, they, they seem to have so much anxiety that they don't know exactly what they want to do, or they have so much anxiety about they're not quite sure what they want their major to be, or they have so much anxiety about not um, doing things fast enough. And, right. um, and it makes me really sort of sad for them to see all that anxiety and angst over that for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that I'm, you know, twice their age. And so, you know, what one part of my brain is just like, Oh, don't like, don't worry. You're so young. <laughs> I there's like, you know, you have so much time. And then also it makes me sad for them because I think, yeah, like I think they've really been taught um, and it's been really reinforced in them that they need to do things quickly or that somehow things will become too late. And I just think it's, you know, with any luck, like, you know, knock wood, I'm knocking my head right now. Like um, (laughs) with any luck, life's long enough that you can have different stages, you know? And so many like, um, you know, uh, you know, interesting people do have different, stages of their lives and like I think creativity um and just like other like kind of accomplishments of the brain just happen at different stages for different um people like I think I think the artist Lorraine O'Grady I think she didn't really even become an artist until she was like 40 you know like and um if I remember right she like worked for the government or something before that and so it's just like um you know, this sort of, this, like, I feel like this fe- the feelings of regret that you're describing, well, if only in high school I had done this, right? <laughs> like, so much more would yeah. have been clear. It's, like, such a sad uh, regret to have for lots of reasons, but also because I just think it's, like, uh, there's so many external forces maybe forcing you to have that regret. And it's, you know, uh, like you're you have like all this time in front of you also like with any luck yeah well i i i totally agree and i think it's insane for us to put that expectation on teenagers to to know what they want to do and have it all figured out and to to aim toward that as though it's the only thing you're ever going to do in your life like to me that's just nuts to select a, a permanent career just as you're becoming an adult, you know, and have no other experience. So, I, and I and and the regret that I expressed about high school doesn't it doesn't live like right at the front of my being. It's not something that I every day wake up thinking about. I'm like, oh, if only I'd done this. And um, <laughs> and I and I do <laughs> I do actually believe that um, that you know your you, things happen not i'm not going to say everything happens for a reason but i think the things that happen in your life happen at the time that you are ready to receive them like whether you know whether you feel like it or not it's the it's the lesson for you to to pass through and uh so i think that you know i mean maybe maybe the whole lesson of this whole thing for me is to not focus on regret like just to have had that entire experience just so that I can look back and say like, yeah, that was all right. It was different than what I thought I was going to have, but it was, it's, 
wasn't terrible and I survived it. And I mean, it was terrible actually sometimes, <laughs> but, but I survived it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I think there are tons of societal and, and familial pressures that, that influence my decisions all along. And, and it's only with age that I've learned to let go of some of that and not be hung up on other people's perception of me. But, um, but it took, it has taken a long time and it still takes steady work to do that. I mean, you're doing this podcast. I mean, you're clearly pursuing things that you're interested in and that are. Yeah. Yeah. This was, this feels like a, it was a long time coming. And, uh, and, and as soon as it arrived, it felt like a, a great fit. And I think all my life, all my adult life, I was looking for that thing, probably because I had the model of my brother who knew from the time he was four years old that he was going to be a painter, you know. Um, or, and from other people, you know, my mom was always pretty, pretty driven and self-sufficient and self-employed. And, you know, she, she did a lot of the models I had for what was, was possible, um, set me up to feel like I had failed if I didn't reach something like that for myself. You know what I mean? Well, I'm sorry that you felt that way. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's it's interesting that you said earlier something like, you know, things happen when you're like ready to pass through them. And I think like similarly, I think you do things when you're ready to do them, you know, and um, like when you talk about this podcast project you're working on now being a long time coming, it happened when you were ready to do it. Like and you had to all these things had to happen to be ready to do it, you know, and um I don't know. It's, it, it, it is interesting though. Like um, that's a real like sliding doors story of you, the Justin who went to that high school and the Justin who did it. Right. Yeah. What, what would have happened? It's, it's something that's probably not, I mean, what the, it, it, it's sort of crazy making just to speculate on that stuff at all, really like to you think of it. You just become a burnout. <laughs> Like, yeah, like, that could have come true, and you could have become, like the the much feared burnout. Yeah, my parents are totally right. They saved me from a, a life of uh, waste. Um, well, <laughs> I managed to become or much joy. Who knows? Yeah, really. Well, I, yeah, I think I've uh, I fulfilled the burnout role without the need for. Uh, an alternative high school to get there. <laughs> I found my way. Uh, I mean, I dropped out of college and moved to San Francisco and uh, I worked and I went to school and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't wasting time, but I still didn't know what I was doing. And uh, so, yeah, I, but I, um, anyway, this, thanks for all that. I feel like I just had a mini therapy session. Thanks for your <laughs> Um, I'll bill you later. Okay, good. Um, but I want to I want to talk more about you than me. But I also want to talk about Lee Lozano and your the piece you wrote. Oh, Lee Lozano, yeah, Lee yeah. is wild. Amazing, right? I I mean, you I I learned more from reading your article than I had known about her 
ever before. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks for reading it. For sure, it's super interesting, and I and I'm, I mean, her whole life sounds really fascinating, but the dropout piece to me is just <laughs> mind mind blowing. It's just such a bizarre and an extreme uh, thing to do. Can you can you describe what that is for the listeners? Yeah, so Lila Zano, um, um, was an artist. And she died in the 90s. And she, um, when she, she was an art student in Chicago and in her 20s. And then when she was, when she turned 30, she moved to New York City. And in the decade that followed, she had a very um, sort of brief but prolific period in New York City. She, um, she like, um, she ended the end of the decade with a solo show at the Whitney, which is like at a time when w- women were not um, often displayed at museums like the like the Whitney, um, and and it was so deserved. It was an extraordinary painter, um, and could be very funny and very dark and like very pornographic and also just like sort of kind of beautiful and 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 brilliant and and um the painting she showed at the Whitney was a series of um of wave paintings um but um but uh during this period too as the decade progressed she sort of moved into this conceptual space um where she um started doing what she sort of had dubbed as like these like like um like art life, like life art projects. So things in her life um, became her pieces. So for example, um, she had a piece called like real money piece, which was like handing out like a jar of passing, like offering a jar of money to guests as if it was a jar of candy or like, um, or like um, she did a piece called grass piece in which she smoked, you know, it's a nice tie into your, burnout uh your burnout stories like um she smoked uh marijuana every day for like over a month and then she followed that with a piece called uh no grass in which she like pretty unsuccessfully tried to not smoke um every day for like over a month and um like grass piece was like shown in the then um the the then young um Paula Cooper Gallery in New York City. And so she was doing these pieces and then um, sort of um, really like troublingly, (laughs) um, she did, she like decided she had a real um, longstanding problem with other women. So she um, decided to boycott women for a month, thinking that would, she, as she wrote, would improve her relations with them. But then it seems she really never stopped doing that for the rest of her life. Um, and, um, and she did, and then she, she, her like sort of final piece, um, like as far as we know was dropout piece. She, it was, she stopped participating in the art world at all. And, and, and I think in she, and in creating art and she moved to Texas and she said it was her, she called it her hardest piece ever. 
and um and then she's sort of that's how that's where her life went she was this in dropout piece for the rest of her life it seems <laughs> but but was she while doing that was she continuing to not interact because because you wrote something about how she wouldn't even acknowledge the waitress or the any women that came during that 30-day period where she was you know was not talking to women and then sort of expanded that into not talking to anyone right no to any women for the rest of her life it, it, like so the so the no, only, girl, women. only women yeah that's so bizarre and and she actually thought at some point that that would improve her relationship with them yeah that's what she wrote but but was she maybe i misunderstood it but was she describing that in and of itself as an art like the ongoing extension of that is that considered dropout piece she just sort of dropped out of or or is that just specifically referring to dropping out of the art world i think her boycott of women was like predated dropout piece um okay. and um other things were going you know other work was going on at that time and then uh i think in the I think like I think one is I want to say early very very like very early so like at the turn of the decade is um is when she dropped out when dro- when she when she embarked on her dropout piece and she just stopped making art or stopped she stopped participating in the art world it it seems both I'm not aware that she was making new art she certainly didn't make new art and show it she allowed a few showings of her old works towards the end of her life. Um, but she really, for the most part, yeah, like dropout piece seems to have really marked. Um, it, it was, it was, it was a work of, it was a work of art for her. This, this practice of, of having dropped out. Right. I mean, and- it's sort of un, like sort of, you know, out conceptualized all the conceptualists in a way, if you think about it, like it's an art that can't, you know, she wrote this, um, I could pull it up for you if you want. She wrote this little, at one point in her notebooks, like a sort of a little, a description or a sort of a manifesto of like her ideal art. Um, yeah. And, yeah. I like that. Um, she she basically that. summed it up perfectly. Um, yeah. Well, I, I would like, that. sorry, go ahead. No, but I think you know, just like she had this idea of art that like, you know, where the artist, like there was no art, there was no artist and no observer and no like, you know, like it was like and couldn't be consumed and that was democratic and that wasn't for sale and right. these other things that, I mean, like arguably her dropout piece is all of those things. Right. Yeah. Both people, everyone involved is the observer and the artist and just that thing. I remember all, I mean, it seems like she was the sort of constant self reflection and, and analysis was the, was the heart of each of those pieces, right? The grass piece. I know like she would just take detailed notes on what she was doing and what she was experiencing. Well, it's interesting. Cause on the one hand, it's like, she was, she, so she had these, these, she had these, um, these notebooks she kept, which, um, which have been reproduced and you can purchase now. Um, but, um, but like, um, 
on the one hand, yeah, she was observing. She was a keen observer of herself. And then also it's like, in a lot of ways, there was no detail. Like, um, like grass pieces, like, you know, like a sentence or two every couple days. Or she did something called like dialogue piece where it was basically just her having different dialogues, like different like conversations with people, like having them over and having right. conversations with them, including like, you know, you know, artists of the day, like Richard Serra and like, but she kept almost, but she didn't transcribe those conversations. She didn't keep much of a record of those conversations. The piece was that she'd had them. Like she, I think she like sort of noted some of them, but like, I mean, it's like she was on the one hand, like gathering all this data about herself and then also like not gathering it. Right. <laughs> um, but so for her, it was the, it was just living through the experience was the art itself. Is that true? Or is that not, is that too simplified? I'm just thinking because, you know, it's, I mean, she, one of the things that makes her so interesting to me is that she's very mysterious to me, you know? And I think part of, for me, part of what draws me to her work is like exactly like all of these questions that go through my head when I try to understand it, you know, like exactly like what you asked, like, you know, um, like, um, what was her deal? Like what's her deal? And also just like, you know, I think there's so much tendency. I mean, there's so much tendency to, for me to project and fill in the gaps on her. Um, yeah, I like that. I actually wrote that down. Your the the part from your article that said that's what we do. We project our own imaginings to replace what's left out, right? I do that. I definitely. Yeah, do I, do, that. I totally do that. I definitely <laughs> do that. I mean, I have this whole. There's not that many photos of her. Um, one of the photos is like her at this table in her studio in on Grand Street, which is where she lived, and um, in Manhattan, and. Um, in the sixties and just the tables just like covered with all the weird stuff like that she was using to like, she, she did a series of paintings that were all like basically giant paintings of like hardware, like, like much of it, like kind of weird and bent out of shape, like three headed hammers and like bent screws. And it's like very. Right. Yeah. And like, those are the ones yeah. I had seen before those are the only ones I was really familiar with. Yeah. Mind. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of, I mean, they're amazing. <laughs> they're like so good. Um, and like, they feel like both like heroic and kind of like ominous. I mean, like they're amazing. Um, uh, she just, you know, her, her mind just like clearly did, did not work like most people's, you know, and it's like part of the thing that's exciting about her. And it's also the thing that's like disturbing about her, you know, like, um, right it is disturbing to me on like many levels that she stopped speaking to women. It's disturbing to me. Like some of her paintings like really disturb me. Um, it disturbs me that, um, it, it, you know, her, when you read it, I mean, you know, her, it, it seems like her behavior could be like quite erratic and even, you know, tor and, and aggressive towards other people. Like, um, yeah. and then, she was also like this idealist, you know, like um, 
she once like proclaimed, I'm not, I am not an art worker. I am an art dreamer, you know? Um, she was looking, she really was like looking for something so, so pure in her art, you know? And I think that, I mean, that is, I think what led her towards her dropout piece. Yeah, that is sort of the final word on that, <laughs> on that whole experience. Like take this, but it's, but it's also like, pretty antisocial and, and um, sort of, uh, I don't know. I mean, all of, all of her work was pretty daring, it seems like. It seems like she'd like to be on the edge of stuff and, and wasn't, I don't know how concerned she was with how other people experienced her, but it didn't seem to change how she showed herself. Um, but, so, but what sort of, like when you project your own stuff onto her what do you what have you come up with like how, how would you be able to to justify for instance not speaking to other women I mean I don't have a lot of desire to justify it I mean I just yeah uh, I, 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 that's I think, the wrong way to... I, I mean I think so I think here's what I think I, 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 like when I try to understand her right which I don't which is, I think, that being, you know, you know, the whole like second wave of feminism was just rising at this time, right? So like, we're still like, you know, in the history of those movements, like we're still like in a certain place. And um, there were other female artists of the time who also felt this way, who didn't really want to be labeled as like woman artists because there was a great feeling I think for them of being like tokenized or not somehow that was marking them as somehow def different than or less than just the word artist, right. Which sort of meant. Right. Men. And, yeah. um, and I think also, um, you know, um, in various ways, like um, I think, and again, I'm like really projecting here. You know, I think women have also, um, you know, been victims of patriarchy and, and also have, like, perpetuated patriarchy um, for a very long time and, you know, perpetuated patriarchy because they were formed by patriarchy and it was inflicted on them. And it was like, and so I think, you know, um, you know, when she talks about having, she, she wrote, she had, I think she, she put it, I have some like old problem, like with women or old problem concerning women. And after right. the cut piece, communication with women will be better than ever. Like clearly, like she had had some like long standing, maybe lifelong experience of not feeling like, like she was having like good relationships with other women or good like conversations with other women, right. In some, in some way. And so I try to like kind of think about like, well, what was it like to be a woman or a woman artist or a childless woman or a divorced woman, which she was like, or all these different things at that time. I don't think any of these things really excuse the boycott. Um, I also think about like the, you know, politics of like, forget the politics, just the kind of the privilege and ramifications of like, you know, a light skinned person, like deciding they're not going to talk to women, 
right? And like how like like that's like you know it's just um um it's just um or just not talk to anybody that they chose to not talk to. I mean, I don't really uh I don't really think that trying to understand her um like brings me closer to like being able to like justify her um yeah, I didn't mean to put that on you as something you should be, should do because I I wouldn't try oh, to do that. I, no, no, I was most no. I, I've thought about it too because the thing is is like I I also feel like a lot of like affection toward her, so like towards like this like ghost of her I've like created in my mind, and so like um, you know it's just like something I have to accept that will like always like like be like problematic about her. You know, and then also try to understand, like, okay, well, what was it like to be a woman then? You know, and um, what was it like to be a woman in that scene? And what was it like to be a, like a woman like that in New York City in the art world at that time? And just try to like um, get that a little bit more. Are you able to do that very well? To to sort of imagine another time, another person's life. Yeah. I mean, how accurately I, I imagine who knows, but yeah, it's like the funnest. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be really careful about it when you're writing about it. And, you know, um, because um, I didn't want to write anything false about her or like replace reality with my imaginings. And I don't think I did, but I have imaginings. Another piece recently where like that ha has happened to me too like I wrote a piece that hasn't published yet about um, the department store Liberty London um, which is like like a pretty like cool department store in, um, uh, in London that like um, like on like fancy high street department store um, but in like the late 1800s they did this like publicity stunt where like which where they like shipped over from India like 40 about 40 Indian people to like be part of this like living Indian village display as like an advertisement for their wares whoa and, yeah and so I wrote this but like there's not much about it like I basically had to piece together I had to go 
there's a great website. It's called um, British Newspaper Archive, and you can go and like read all these old British newspapers. Like they've scanned in like just like so, like, just, I mean, countless old newspapers. And so I just really like. And then there was like sometimes of India newspaper clippings in there and stuff too. And I just had to like piece together what had happened from like just these tiny little newspaper reports. Um, right. And like, um, it like really, like it was like that one was like, I really had to like, uh, I really like there, when I was editing it with my editor, I was like so paranoid. Like I, there was a couple sentences where I was like, is this too much poetic license? Is this too much? projection um because you're trying to tell a story and piece this together into like a kind of something that feels like an interesting narrative but you weren't there and you can't talk to anyone was that who was there and you don't have that much material to work with and so it's like really really careful the whole time but yeah my mind just like like totally like you know painted this very you know this picture of like of uh what it was like for these people who had showed up in showed up in London in the cold winter, like from India to do like be part of this thing. Uh, and the whole thing was a mess, like predictably. Um, but yeah, like I think my mind, my mind goes there. Like it's like, cause it's interesting, you know, like the, the past yeah. is interesting. It's there, you know. So, so were they, when you say they were living display, did they actually build like they built living quarters within the, confines of the department store and then had them had people actually there going about their business it was it so they had it in this like exhibition hall like this glass exhibition hall um i think it was called like albert palace and like like they'd set up like this like inside this glass exhibition hall like this this like village with like the there here's where the snake charmer is and here's where the silversmith is and here where like the dancers are and like here's where like like the carpet weaver is like it was like this village that's, like, so crazy. Mm-hmm. that's totally insane and they were and they were just like living mannequins basically yeah yeah like to be gawked at and you know um like you know all you can i mean your imagination could quite accurately guess at the racism and the and just like the you know what I mean like it's always it could go awry yeah like and it was like you know um it was like kind of a financial mess and like it was just you know it was bad sounds like Westworld (laughs) (laughs) terrible yeah um but I guess I I mean I guess there was a real trend of these like living displays for a period in Europe and in America and other places, Japanese villages, Indian villages. In London, a few months after the Liberty Village, there was another living Indian display. And this one was like, um, was staffed by, uh, mostly by inmates from like the Agra jail that had been brought over. (laughs) Yeah, so it's just like, it's, 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 uh, yeah. It's weird to me that that, like it really wasn't that long ago that, that people thought, that was totally cool. Like there's nothing, that's no big deal. We're basically just bringing over some slaves to do this advertising campaign, you know? Like, I mean, they paid them. I mean, the, the, actually they didn't pay them. It was the problem, but like, um, but they had contracts, um, but. They offered to pay them. Yeah. But like, um, 
they were supposed to meet the queen, like all these things didn't happen, but like, or the queen was going to come or something. But like, uh, yeah, I just think that this, uh, you know, this, yeah, you're, you're right. Like it would, it just like, wouldn't, it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't fly today. No, I hope not. You know, <laughs> I mean, but, I'm, but also like foolishly, I think, well, lots of things that shouldn't fly today seem to be flying like look what look, yeah. apparently you can you know shoot a young jogger like in cold blood like on the street for jogging while black you know and you know so lots of things can and do still happen and seem to like you know and not get arrested for it for right no know, i didn't mean to like, say that any, you know, like i didn't want to suggest that any of that racism has gone away oh i know i know i know i just mean like yeah at least like surprised that it was it could be so overt and accepted you know sort of across at least in our society it was it seemed to be the norm it was like totally totally fine to appropriate another culture for your own use and uh but but just so brazenly and without any it's weird to me that the the it didn't occur to people sooner that that was wrong. I guess that's the part that I don't, and I guess it's still occurring to people. There's still a lot of people who haven't gotten the memo yet. Yeah. I mean, it's like, um, I'm sure you could show that article to, you could find people to show that article to today who would be like, what, what is the problem? Yeah. They'd be like, when's it coming to my mouth? That's awesome. You know, so they, they, you know, they got, they got on the coach. They came over to do it. Like, it's just like, you know, um, I'm sure you could find tons of people who would be like, what are you talking about? What's the problem? Yeah, it's true. It's still such a strange thing to me. I guess it just, it feels so wrong that I don't know how anybody ever thought it was right. It's really, it's really, um, like everyone I've told that, like told the story to is like, what? Yeah. Like, WTF? Like, is the text message back? to just talk a bit about the last piece that you wrote uh, having to do with patriotism and being a color other than white in the United States and uh, all that whole experience, which might be a big topic for you, I, I imagine. It's most, most of your life experiencing 
some form of that. Is that true? Like some, some kind of discrimination based on your skin color? Yeah, I think in different ways. Um, the, the thing you're talking about is after the period after 9-11, um, right. which I've been thinking about a lot now because of what's happening to a lot of Asian American people right now um, because of... Um, because of, um, I was going to say because of coronavirus, but it's not because of coronavirus. Because of the stereotype that that it has led people to latch onto, or the you know the false the false information that this was the fault of some particular race. Well, it's like because of it's because of it's because people are racist and don't need much to like uh, amplify their racism, you know, like, um, like I don't even know if I, there can be all sorts of false information in the world. That doesn't mean that the, you know, the consequences have to be racism. You know what I mean? Like, um, like, um, um, but yeah, I've been thinking about that period quite a bit recently because, um, from like witnessing and reading um, and hearing, you know, from friends and from, you know, sadly from students, um, you know, what they've been experiencing the last few months and the sort of feeling of like, you know, um, just like this feeling of, um, you know, there are so many people who will just like see not see, not see you, um, um, and like your humanity first, they'll see like, like the racial avatar they've created for you in their mind first. Um, That's a really good way to put it. I've never heard it said that way. That's totally accurate. It's like a summary of every of the things that you have assumed about a certain race. Right. And I don't think I'm like at all, like I'm definitely not the, like, I'm not like, you know, uh, like the first person to like articulate that. Like, um, um, but like, yeah, so I think, and I think during like these moments of like real crisis, um, you know, uh, like the that situation just becomes more dangerous for like certain groups of people. Right. Certainly, after nine eleven, that was super apparent for you. Well, you tell the story of driving with your dad to Chicago, your mom sent you along sort of as a safety buffer for your dad. Yeah. Like, I think we just had this idea in our head that if, um, if he was driving, um, or like stopping at like gas stations and stuff with like his daughter, that somehow people wouldn't think he was like suspicious, <laughs> like that he wasn't right. like, a, like a terrorist. Um, you know, I mean, I, I said that when I 
wrote so funny enough I was in Finland when I wrote that piece so um but I so I sent it to my dad um and like he just felt like everything because I wanted sort of you know we, we were talking before about truth and facts and all of that and um you know you also have to fact check your own memory um and um I did that with like the liberty piece too like I fact checked it with my mom because I had gone to that store with her but um but um so like yeah like it really did he felt he his memory was exactly the same as mine of about what had happened but like yeah we you know it was like shortly after 9-11 and you know there was a lot of um vitriol towards like um people who like certainly like middle eastern like men of middle eastern origin arab and muslim men you know my family is not arab or muslim or middle eastern but um you know um south asian people had been men had been killed um in the days after 9-11 um for existing and um and so there was we had some idea in our head well if he's with this this like this like young woman who was like um uh it, like they won't be so suspicious of him um, right yeah i think it's probably true i think that probably at least for some people that is the case i mean they, who knows it's he would be more in danger by himself than he is just being a father who's in, you know it may, it's probably not accurate. It's just it works to um, it works with the with that sort of narrow perception of the people who see things that way. Oh, your skin is this color. That means you must be this, and therefore you are this, and therefore I must attack you. Or you know, like that's just such an insane criteria in the first place to have for yourself, but then to apply it somewhat indiscriminately you know well again you know this young man and you know going for a jog you know right um, well there are millions of examples of it in our country of just people you know totally innocent people being blamed for someone else's wrongdoing and completely overlooking the actual trend of it almost always being white men who are the problem you know they're the most common aggressors in history. You know, like it's just like this ongoing myth about who who does the evil in the world. I mean, yeah, and you just look at what what happened, you know, to Ahmad Arbery, and and um, and it's like, uh, you know, when you start to read about these conversations that were happening like between like prosecutors and all these people, you know, involved with the case and just like this assumption that the, that the, that the evil must have been, you know, like, like, like these people were just protecting themselves from evil, you know, just like the way that, uh, like how quickly minds go there. And it's just, but it's also like, it's like, it's like something beyond that too. It's like a real like desire and will for that to be true. I think, you know, like the, there's something really dark and I mean, and racist about like that, 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 you know, that 
about these minds that like wanted the, that to be the, the case that for it to fit that narrative. Um, I think that's a super, super common problem in our society. We've like, that's, we're looking, we're preemptively looking for the way in which it would fit that narrative. And so we force it into that narrative uh, and it never, it never belonged there, but it was, it's like the story that somehow makes people feel comfortable. The rate, you know, people who want to remain racist and not, uh, and not reckon with that you know, not try to gain a deeper understanding of what that is, what that means. Yeah. So they just keep selling, you know, keep pushing the same narrative and overlaying it on everything, right? Yeah, and are like rewarded for doing that. So, but, so what have you... How how can you compare your like your lifelong experience of racism in whatever way it's uh, shown up to your current to the current state of things and what like what's your feeling about divisiveness today and and where things are headed and as someone because I I only I you know my white privilege extends beyond where I know it does, you know, unfortunately. I'm, I try to be conscientious and aware of what, all the different ways in which things are assumed for me that it's not so for other people. Um, but I, but I'm, not, I'm not there yet. I haven't reached full awareness of the extent to which it extends. So I'm always curious to hear from someone who's had a different experience like what the what the actual truth of it is i mean i don't know what the i i mean I it's different like, oh, sorry I, I didn't it's not i didn't phrase it well the truth just one one's own truth of of that experience that's different from mine i don't mean that there is one i mean i but, feel i feel like quite hopeless right now about yeah I, I actually really, um, I don't, I like don't have a satisfying answer to that. Like, you know, people talk about divisiveness, but I feel like I'm kind of like that, the, the word divisiveness makes it feel like, well, there's these two sides and they're both like, equal, like they just like can't come to an agreement about things. And to me, it's like something darker than that. Like, I feel like there is like real, there's like a real like sort of like like sort of dark simmering hateful violent um like like miasma like kind of like in the air you know and i just and and if that's that's like the other side of a divide i don't know like i just don't i it's like that i don't know I don't know how I compute that, but I feel like very like um, I feel very sad. I feel like um, so many things that I feel like were already. I mean, I felt like I feel should have been very apparent, and I think we're apparent to lots of people 
before the pandemic are just like laid bare, like stripped bare now. And um, I feel, I feel like very upset when people talk about things going back to normal. Like, I don't think things should go, like, like this should not be making us want things to go back to how they were before. Like, and, and, um, that that is like the, the impulse that people have and the desire that people have. It's, it's like, well, if, if now, like, it doesn't convince you that like, we need to rethink how we live. Um, our values is like a, as like a society, like nothing's, I don't know what will. And it's just, um, I like, I'm very frightened by it. Me and too. I'm having the exact same experience. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't no, no, mean to. No, I was just, you know, kind of rambling. Yeah, but yeah, like, I mean, you feel the same way. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's really, I, I recognize that there's a certain comfort to the status quo for those who have that comfort in the first place. Um, but they're, they're the ones who've been, uh, you know, ex- continuing and exacerbating the issue forever just by being comfortable in the status quo. Like, you know, the people who are, who are able to live with relative ease without having to consider those who don't, are not really the people who should be making the rules for everyone. And, you know, and that seems to be the system that we've set up where the, you know, the people that have it the easiest are making laws and, and guidelines for everyone to live by with the assumption that they can all just do that as easily as, the, as they do. And almost no one can, you know, there, there's this totally exempted group. Uh, so, and when I'm talking about that, I'm thinking of, sort of white people throughout history globally or, you know, Europeans at least. Um, But I'm also thinking of our current government or just government in general when it's, you know, the, the so-called the, the elected officials and lawmakers are, are the ones who are supposed to be doing this on our behalf, but it seems like more, kind of right from the beginning if you really look at the constitution and how it's who it's set up for it's just always been you know set up for those who wrote it basically and you know it applies to a certain group and not anyone else so totally and this is happening all over the world i mean look at india right now um saying what's you know it's just um um, I was in I was in France for like a month last year. Like Le Pen was doing going strong in the polls. Like it's it's um it's uh it's all over. Yeah, it's not know, just the uh the the writer uh the writer Zadie Smith um at the end of 2016 won some literary award. I don't remember what. What I do remember is that um someone published the like the acceptance speech like the little lecture and it wasn't a lecture like a little speech that she gave when she received the award and what I remember from this is that I think she wrote said something sheepish about what it is feels like to like felt like to receive an award at that moment 
um, when, you know, like um, after the election. Um, But went on to talk a bit about sort of history and like the, and a novelist sort of view of human nature. And I, I find myself thinking about that now a bit, but in a, not in like a particularly optimistic way. I mean, the gist of what she was saying is like, you know, human, like, you know, politics can change, but human nature doesn't. And um, she used the analogy, I think of like a conductor who comes and like, like sort of conducts everyone into like playing one type of tune and then another comes and like conducts us into playing another, you know, different one. And just sort of makes me think, well, yeah, like all the same personality traits that existed in Shakespeare's plays like still exist now. So how is anything ever going to get better? Like I just, just the, um, you know, you know, I don't, I don't want to tell other people how to live. Like, I don't want anyone to tell me how to live. Like, I don't, that's not what I want. But like, across the country, these, this like, anger and resistance towards wearing a mask, which is completely about not harming other people. Um, It's like people have confused their liberty with their selfishness. And it's just like, well, how, how do you like, I, I've just been thinking a lot about human nature and all the different sort of, like, characters that just recur and recur and recur. Right. <laughs> like, um, selfish, ambitious, egotistical, kind, you know, it just, there's, like, so many different honest, you know, insecure, like, there's, like, some, you know, zillion, and, like, dishonest. yeah, and, like, um, yeah, and, like, um like uh these different personalities like value different things and just uh i don't know like i just i just maybe i'm just getting old enough to see like history repeat itself and it's like um a bummer
really inspired by, by, by certain journalists, but I've also like, again, it kind of brings me back to hopelessness again, because we're just in this quagmire when it comes to truth <laughs> and like our like acceptance of truth. And, and I don't know, maybe it's always been like that, but it's so, it feels so, um, wretched right now. Yeah. I don't think it's always been, I don't think it's always been this wretched, this extreme. I think there's, it's been a problem all along. I think it's, it's one of those human characteristics that tends to show up again is the sort of corruption and dishonesty and, and it happens in institutions when it's allowed to, uh, when, when the sort of principles get, uh, thrown out and, um, the focus changes and, you know, somebody's gaining more from a certain situation. So they abuse it. And, uh, but I, yeah, I don't think it's achieved, it's ever achieved this level of, I think wretchedness is a good word. We use that again. I mean, like I, the, the wretchedness I feel is like really just like around this question of like, how do you even get the public to believe true things? <laughs> you know, I like, right. and is it even about like sharing truth anymore? Is it, or is it about convincing, you know, and the, the latter just seems so much harder in some ways. I mean, they're both hard, but like, it's just like, how do you convince? Like, how do you, how do you convince anyone of facts? Like you can't, you can't really, if they're choosing to believe what's not true without looking to see if it is, then, then you can't convince anybody. I hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong too. I just, I mean, maybe it has to be the most definitive truth possible for some people to get it. And I don't, but I don't know what that is. I feel like it's already been, we've seen examples of definitive truth being presented and still denied. Oh yeah. We're so, like way past that point. Like, yeah. So how do we, I don't know. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that there is a way to convince, but I think we've, we've put more, we've placed more value on being right than on being accurate or true so that's what people are fighting for is to be oh i won i won that argument even though i lied throughout you know um I know. so i think that's yeah. that's a problem if we can't agree on the basic value of truth then it's going to be a hard battle i mean i've been thinking a lot about media literacy and how we don't teach it um And do you try to teach it in your in your classes? I feel like some people attempt to, but it's not it's definitely not in the curriculum to, to teach. I mean, I feel like it should be like in your first grade curriculum. I feel like it should I be agree. one of those subjects you just take. I mean, there's all these subjects that I feel like aren't as widespread anymore. Like we don't really have like civics anymore, right? No, it got wiped out secretly. It was kind of a, a sneaky way to rid people of the power to express their political will. Wait, know? what happened to civics? Like how did civics get removed? I think that they started to combine the social sciences with the sciences in favor of math. And um, they started to mostly just wipe out social science and, and political science. I think, I mean, I, it feels very uh, intentional to me that civics was removed. Because we used to learn how to write legislation, 
we learned we wrote our own bills in high school you know and um they don't want people doing that now they don't want people to have that sort of understanding of how things work and ability to express themselves so i think it was systematically removed but it was done under the guise of like hey let's put all the sciences together so maybe i'm extrapolating or i'm wrong but that's how i see it i mean i think it's so whatever the reason i mean it's had the effect that you're i think it has the effect that you're the absence of those subjects i think has that effect of like disempowering people and making them feel removed from these processes and not connected to them and not able to like engage with them and you know um like you know whatever your political like view is like that i feel like the consequences are the same for all of us and i feel like that with um like there's a real in a like real like in a like real crisis in media literacy and i'm not just talking about like the people who click on an article on facebook from you know like I, I feel like i'm paraphrasing a colbert joke or something but like bald eagle jesus christ america forever dot news dot co or whatever like and things right. like, well, like i'm talking about like being able to read any article and like kind of ask yourself questions about who's in it who's not in it what's the what's the legitimacy or the or the um authority of the of the of the sources in this piece how many sources are there um you know what i mean like just like being able to read any article and see, and kind of with a critical eye and like um and and engage its trustworthiness and its accuracy and you know what i mean like that to me is like that's like the that's like sort of you know on a deeper level the skill that's missing and that makes it so easy for a headline in a in you know on a facebook post or a whatsapp group or whatever like have so much power because there's like no instinct or urge to look at that at all of that to interrogate all of that you know like to wonder where it's coming from i think you're totally right i don't think that was ever i think it's only in recent years that that's being introduced into any sort of teaching because i don't remember I, I don't remember learning to have that sort of critical eye i mean i didn't study journalism either so i don't know but um well but, i mean i went to grad school for journalism but i didn't i didn't really study it as an undergrad and i i, I don't remember that being part of my high school education maybe it was and i just don't remember but i don't really remember that well, it should certainly be a, be a part of things now, given that every kid has their own phone and access to just raw information, you know? Totally, totally, at 100%. Um, and, yeah, I don't know, like, um, I mean, that's a really good point, like, just the, we're just engaging with, information like at such in such a great quantity so early now i mean i'm not a hundred years old I'm, but like it's like when i was a kid there was um the nightly news and there was the newspaper that came each day and 
And there was, I remember when like CNN launched, like I remember watching the Gulf War at the dinner table, like, you know, like, um, and like, and like the rise of CNN when I was like, I don't know, like 11 years old or something like that, those, that life is so different, I imagine, than an 11 year old's media consumption now. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And it, and it has to be shaping our brains as a, as a race, you know, it has to be doing something different because we've never, we just never, we're not really set up to consume information in that way. So I think it's overwhelming just at the start and then to get into trying to decipher it and analyze it and, you know, question question it where it comes from and every, uh, all of that stuff has fallen by the wayside yourself and uh, fielding my clumsy questions oh they weren't I think this was really interesting I really liked hearing about your um about your your past a little bit it's um uh, difficult for me to not just keep asking you questions <laughs> well we can talk more about that another time if you want I really appreciate you your interest uh, <laughs> I'm happy to uh, to to. I mean, I have a pretty clear sense of my own psyche and the damage that's been done. And I'm just <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out how to do, repair it. And um, but that's but it's helpful to talk to other people with different perspectives. That's one of the best ways for me to learn, just to incorporate a new way of looking at something. That because the my old ways obviously didn't serve me in in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm grateful to get somebody else's take on it and, and see if that changes my own. Well, I completely understand what you mean. Cause that's also why I like, um, writing and reporting and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Delve deep and try to figure it out. Thank you for asking me. It was nice to talk to you. Likewise. I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much. Thanks for um, putting up with all the nonsense that it took to pick up. <laughs> I, I, think it, I think the the internet gods have smiled on us at last. I think you're right. Um, 
so awesome. Well, thanks so much, Anjali. I really appreciate it. And let's uh, be in touch. Yes, thank you. Be safe. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Here's my new friend, Anjali Kosla. Her name is spelled A-N-J-A-L-I-K-H-O-S-L-A. So um, you can find articles that she's written a few different places. Um, Her name is unique enough that if you search for her and you search for the word journalist, you'll find pretty much everything, I think, um, but there are others out there, uh, other imposters. But you can look for her stuff at The Guardian, uh, at Gossamer, gossamer.co, um, and other places as well. And you can also go to her website, which is com. And the article that we talked about that Anjali said uh, had not yet been published is being published, I think, this week. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, The one about the sort of racist living displays, the little villages inside of uh, exhibition halls. Um, I want to say thank you to Anjali. I want to say thank you to you, my listeners. I want to say thank you to my patrons over on Patreon. Uh, that would be patreon.com slash outspoken podcast. And that is where you can support the show if you so desire. Um, there are lots of different tiers with different levels of membership and different rewards. Um, there are things like, uh, the musical interludes from the episodes, from all the past episodes compiled into batches and released to you, just music alone, no words. And there are things like original artwork, if you stick around as a member for a few months, and lots of other stuff. Um, so check that out. And I'm going to be trying to figure out ways to parlay some of some of that uh, into donations to causes that support black liberation and justice. Um and police reform and defunding and things like that. So soon, very soon, I will find some way. It might just be selling my art and music or auctioning it um, or have you give a donation and then show me that you gave that donation and then I send you a piece of artwork, something like that. So keep an eye on my Instagram and listen here, I guess, for next week's show where I might talk about it. All right. Uh, My love to all of you. Please be safe and kind and go easy on yourselves unless you're somebody who goes too easy and then don't go too easy on yourself. Step it up a bit. All right. Love you. Bye.